0: And as you find your place, we're going to begin tonight. We'll open with a word of prayer. And um, as we do, I'm going to have you have your Bible ready tonight. We are going to sing three songs tonight, but uh, a little different format than normal. We are covering three, three chapters tonight, three chapters and two verses of Esther tonight. And so instead of one longer reading at the beginning of the sermon, time. We're going to split it up a little bit. So we're going to sing a song and then read a chapter. Sing a song, read a chapter. So have your Bible ready in Esther chapter 5. And we'll be there in just a couple minutes. Brother Young will lead us in a song. And then, like I said, we'll read, sing, read, sing, and keep coming back and forth. So hopefully you're ready to do both of those this evening. Let's open with a word of prayer tonight. And uh, thank you for being here. And we'll ask the Lord to bless um. His word tonight is study and reading, teaching of it. No snow today. There was a small, little, bitty chance I heard of snow, and we have none. So those of you that don't like snow got your wish today, and uh, others of you are still holding out. And uh, so you pray this evening, whichever way you want, and uh, we'll see which one happens. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love to us. Thank You for who You are, that You are our God, that You have taught us of Yourself. Help us not to take that for granted, that we do not deserve to know You, but You have communicated to us Yourself in Your Word. And that even in a book like we've been studying in the book of Esther, just in a, in a way very different from many other portions of Scripture, but You have chosen this unique account Of a way that you worked in history at a time that you were not always visibly evident to your believers, to your followers and children, but you were always working and always in control, always in love and in grace, uh, working toward your good for us and for your glory. So teach us that tonight. With those that have great needs in our church, our congregation. Uh, soothe hearts and minds and lives even by your word tonight as we study it by the presence of other believers here gathered and uh, by the prayers that we will pray and lift up to you uh, as we come together before you those that are watching or listening and knowing that their church is praying and praying for them and they can pray with us and that your spirit is present with each of us and we thank you for that we love you. You are a good God to us, and uh, we praise you for it. Amen. And you can be seated tonight, as I mentioned a moment ago, a little different. We'll sing again in a moment, but we're going to read God's word in between our songs tonight. And if you would, find your place in the book of Esther, chapter 5. And we're not doing this just to... Uh, break up a longer passage of scripture, but also to allow our hearts to focus on each section that we read for a moment and then sing and allow God's word to work in us. I think sometimes in our nature and in our uh, modern culture, I guess you'd say, we lose and we have short attention spans, particularly when it comes sometimes to reading and so to Uh, read a long portion of scripture. Hopefully it doesn't, but sometimes we can be distracted, our minds turn aside. So we're going to do this tonight to try to focus closely on what the Lord's Word says. So Esther chapter 5, continuing the account of the story of Esther, particularly four characters. Esther, the king, um, you have Ahasuerus, you have Mordecai, and you have Haman. And we're going to see each of them, call them characters loosely, these people that are involved in this story of reversal that the Lord works in their lives. And so, Esther chapter 5, look at verse number 1 if you would, and we'll read along. It says, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, "What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee even th- given thee to half of the kingdom." And Esther answered, "If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him." Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to half of the kingdom uh, it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and will, go do, and will do tomorrow, as the king hath said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he stood not up, nor moved for him. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. When he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther, the queen, did, not let, uh, did let no man come in the king with, unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife, and all his friends uh, um, unto him, let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou and merrily with the king. Uh, go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. And sing uh, another chorus, Seek ye first. And you can remain seated this time, and then keep your place there. We'll find our. <coughs> you know, Brother Young and I didn't coordinate that song with our text, it was just picked and chosen for tonight. But I was thinking about that as we just read in Esther chapter 5. Here's Esther with a relationship with a king who uh, is not the best or greatest of relationships and she has to be afraid to even enter his presence. When she does, she actually finds favor with him and he offers, offers her up to half the kingdom and says, what's your request? Just ask. Even though most likely that's sort of a colloquialism, just a conventional saying. He didn't really mean you can have half the kingdom. And then she has to go back and forth and host a banquet for him and try to please him. And yet we have a good father and king that says, Come unto me and ask of me in my name and I will give you. And we can enter boldly into his throne. And thinking about that tonight as we read. Continuing on in chapter 6. So you have Esther who has gotten through the initial part of the fear that chapter 4 introduced. Will she die if she enters the presence of the king? She doesn't. So she says, come tomorrow to a banquet. And yet chapter 6 tells us there's a chance that might not happen. Verse number 1. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants, ministered unto him, there is nothing done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, when it says there now, it means literally at that moment, Haman walks into the court. Now Haman was coming to the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, "Ah, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man in whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? So Haman answered the king. For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man Whom the king delighteth to honor. The king said unto Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh's wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. We'll sing one final song, and then we'll come back and we'll read what happens, how the Lord works. We'll finish. You can stand for this one. We'll wake ourselves up one last time. Amen. Good singing this evening. Have the seat one final time and look to Esther chapter 7. Now as we... Continue reading on Esther chapter seven. You say, "This seems ambitious for you, taking three chapters in an evening, and it is, but we're going to try it, because they fit well together. It's progressing the narrative, and I think they need to be done together, so we're going to do our best this evening. So look if you with the final portion. we're going to read down to the second verse of chapter eight. So the king and Haman came to the banquet, this is the second banquet, the next day, with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther, on the second day at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, what is thy request, and it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king similar to what she said yesterday, and she has asked for a second banquet. Notice she turns quickly, notice, Let my life be given to me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto th- Esther the queen, who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed, or this is most likely like a couch that they would sit on to eat and recline by a large table. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. And on that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. The king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Lord, help us as we attempt to glean from your word, as you have told us by your word. in Romans that this is all written before time. It was all written for our learning that every word that is spoken is good and profitable to grow us uh, for our instruction and for our learning. So tonight, may we not just read an account of something that happened to someone else. May we sense the very hand of God that is present in our own lives and recognize that when we cannot see you, when we do not feel you, when we do not sense you as evident and clear, Invisible visible, that all the while you are presently and powerfully ruling in us and over us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn back, if you would, to Esther chapter 5 as we begin tonight, and we're going to jump right in. If we have three chapters and two verses tonight, we're not going to dally with much introduction and review tonight. Hopefully you've been following along with our study of the book of Esther and We're thinking about the fact that even though God's name is not mentioned and there is no outward acts of faith really proclaimed that way, at least in the book, there's no supernatural miracles within nature itself done here. It is evident that even when God seems absent to his people, that he is very, very present, that he rules and reigns over us. And I don't think that's going to be any more clear any place in the book of Esther than these three chapters this evening. In fact, I want you to notice right as we begin that the writer has dramatically slowed how he is progressing the timeline of the book. If we were to go back and read in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, there's little markers given to us all along the way for a timeline. It says that the book begins in the third year of the reign of Hazarus, and then he comes and he's needs to pick a new queen, and that happens, and he's talking about the seventh year of that reign, and then he makes this other rule where Haman passes this other law, and we we're, we're progressing all the way through, and it tells us that he has covered about nine years in chapters one through four it doesn't mean it's nine years to the exact day, but there's about nine years in there somewhere between. 3,000 and 3,250 days have passed in the first four chapters of the book. Now, the next three chapters, chapter 5, 6, 7, and actually all of 8, progresses over less than 48 hours. So think for a moment. Imagine you're watching a movie or you're, you're seeing something. This is like the dramatic slow motion shot. The, the music has built and things have come to a, a, a slow pace and all of a sudden everything goes silent. It's in total slow motion. And the writer here is drawing our attention to this. He says, don't miss this. A lot has happened in Esther. A lot of has happened that has even displayed, if you know the whole of Esther, that has displayed God's hand and his goodness and his guiding, even in the midst of some terrible, terrible things. But don't lose sight of the fact that 3,000 days have passed bad times overall. Remember how difficult we said those first four chapters of the book of Esther are. You have a a wicked king that is prideful and feasting and womanizing and degrading to the the woman that is his wife, the queen that he's already married to. He ships her off. He makes a law to bring others in. He picks them in a vile way, builds a harem of concubines, lives a life in relation with his new queen Esther who is supposed to be one of the children of God protected from things like this, and now she's trapped in this relationship with him that we find in chapter 4 is distant and cold. She hasn't seen him in a month when we get to chapter 4, and she's afraid to even enter into her husband's presence lest he kill her by law. 3,000 days of that, chapters 1 through 4. And yet God, in about 48 hours, flips it all on its head. Uh, we titled it there that the tables are turned. It's not that they turn them themselves, the people, but God turns them. I was looking at I was wondering, where exactly does that come from? Where does that phrase come from? Because I'm trying to imagine you're sitting at dinner and someone turns the table. That would be frustrating. And So I looked it up today, and evidently it's from particularly like card games and different things like backgammon. And, it, and I was so disappointed. It has nothing to do with actually physically turning a table all of these years I have pictured sitting at a table and turning it so that it's it's to your advantage and not someone I thought it's like somebody cheating, but it's supposed to be like someone comes from behind and gains the advantage as opposed to the disadvantage. I was highly disappointed that no tables were actually physically turned. But I still titled the lesson that tonight because I like the way that it kind of pictures it. And that's what's gonna happen. Haman has all the advantage, the authority, God's people are in trouble. They are destined to die by law. Esther is in a horrible position. Mordecai is mourning God's people in the position that they're in. Esther is afraid to even enter into the presence of her own husband. And she's wondering if she doesn't tell him if her life would even be spared. Awful situation. 3,000 days of it. And yet in less than two, God does this mighty work. And so let's notice a few things that, as we just read. And I want you to think about it as we go back through and look at it. You see, notice the slower progression. The detail now that we get of the events as we read it. There's a quick change that takes place. And notice where it takes place. Right in the heart of the empire. God does not turn their circumstances around by bringing a mighty army from Egypt. He doesn't bring a hurricane from the ocean. He doesn't Bring a mighty earthquake, he doesn't bring some army from a distant land to conquer them right from in the midst where the very heart of the trouble is. The law that, in fact, think about the two men that are involved. The very two men that made the law that brought all the darkness upon Israel are going to be involved with turning it all around for God's good. So, right in the midst of it, proving that God is not limited by wicked men in powerful positions. It does not have to change for God to work. And here's another thing, and we're going to really point out tonight. Watch for reversals. There's a constant state, that's why we call it turning the tables, there's a constant state of reversal, inverting things on their head in this chapter. And in fact, we put those sort of in bold print tonight. It's just one right after the next, showing that God turns things around. And so now you have Then you have God's hidden hand as evident. We've already mentioned that. Another interesting thing to note in these three chapters, like a lot of Jewish, I, I, call, I use the term loosely storytelling, the lot of Jewish writing narrative is often very factual and it is very neutral in what it states. Even if you read a lot of Jewish historical writings, they don't <coughs> assume upon you or make you think what they want you to think as far as if something is good or bad. They just tell you what it is. And so far in the book of Esther, that has been the case. King did this. Vashti did this. Doesn't tell us why. Doesn't tell us if the motivations were good. Haman does this. Mordecai does this. Esther does these things. No condemnation and no condoning. No approval. It just tells us. Yet in these chapters, all of a sudden, it speaks very deeply about the heart of Haman which is very different than any other part of the book because it actually gives us insight into what is bad and evil going on in his heart and life. And so let's walk through the passage again quickly tonight. And I just want you to point out some things. We can't do a full, just lengthy in-depth that we could. Most of you may eventually leave. So we're going to do, just sort of point out some important things as we go. So I want you to notice Chapter 4 builds this intense, cliff-hanging type of moment. Mordecai is mourning in the streets with, with ashes on his body, sackcloth, just rags <coughs> for clothing, crying out. Esther tries to send him a new robe. He won't have, he doesn't listen. Mordecai, what is wrong? He tells Esther, and Esther's response is not what we think. Her initial response is, well, what am I, I can't do anything about this. If I go in, I will die. So now all of a sudden you have this part of the narrative that's introduced that threatens now Esther's life. All of chapter 4 is really about that. Mordecai saying, look, you might die anyway. You are threatened. You're going to have to do this. And it builds this tension of what's the king going to decide? And I want you to notice that in one verse, all that's gone. Like you would think if all of chapter 4 is really dedicated to what's Esther going to decide Is she going to have the courage and will she die because of her courage? You would think there's going to be a little bit more dramatic telling of what happens. What was it like when she went in? Was her heart pounding? Was she sweating? Was she nervous? Did she stammer? What was the king's mood? What were things like? It doesn't tell us any of those things. It just says in verses 1 and 2, she gets dressed in her royal apparel, which I think is interesting to note in the tone of the first four chapters in which most people, and specifically the women and the concubines that were going before him having to try to please the king in some sensual way. She does not appeal to that. She puts on her royal robe and goes before him as the queen to ask him of this petition. So she enters the house, and then notice in verse number 2, it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out the scepter, the golden scepter was in his hand, so Esther drew near, touched the top of the scepter. Boom! Done. Over. <laughs> all of chapter four that built up that anxiousness in our hearts—if we're really trying to read it as though we don't know what's coming—this, that anxiety that builds, three days of fasting and praying, all comes to a close. She walks in. Pff, done. That part of the danger's gone. And isn't that amazing? Sometimes in our own hearts, that something can build and build and build and magnify. Yet the Lord is in control, and He can take care of it however He decides or pleases. And so that's gone. So what do we have in the next two and a half, two and three quarter chapters that we're going to read through and study? I want you to notice the king is in a good mood. Evidently, he still does have deep feeling, at least toward Esther, as in respect for her, at least as the queen. And so he says, have what you'd like up to half the kingdom. I mentioned a moment ago, this is probably, you study historically, this is a phrase that's probably just used by wealthy and royal people to just show their love or friendship. You think about, we studied last week with Salome, the uh, sort of step-niece daughter of Herod, and that when she dances for him, Herod says, remember what he says to her, you can have whatever you want up to half the kingdom. they are not really actually promising half the kingdom, Uh, but it just shows his flamboyance toward her. So Esther asks, what does she ask? She asks for the immediate presence of Haman at a banquet that she has prepared. And I want you to notice the first reversal that we have in verse 5. A young Jewish woman who is condemned to die in chapters 1 through 4 is now calling the shots over the two most powerful men in the world. Overnight, boom, just switches. And, and, and I, I, I want to say up front, I'm glad you're responding. Some of you are responding the way that you are to the reading of this word. I truly believe that God in inspiring this portion of his word desires that this portion of scripture, it is dark and, and it is troubling. And there's a lot of just difficult things in these three chapters. But I believe that the Lord wants to invoke the same response that you're giving. Laughter, joy, joy at how quickly He conquers evil. And, I, and I want, I'll, I'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to get here at the end. But I'm so excited about it. I believe that one day, a small taste of what you're feeling and laughing about right now, like I can't believe that this darkness of nine years in just a moment is gone. The Lord is going to do that for us, but for eternity. And the small laughter that we have tonight over an ironically comical section of Scripture is going to be deep, I'll call it gut-busting, joyful laughter when we stand in the presence of God and see every part of evil that has ever been reversed and destroyed. We feel this way about this section of Scripture because it's what God designs for us to feel. That when evil is conquered by the Lord, that is a good thing. And so as we read it and we read these reversals, yes, we laugh we cry, we find joy in it. Notice, if you were the second reversal, in the first banquets mentioned, the other two sort of celebrations are banquets mentioned. In the first chapter, he's having this banquet where he's drinking with all of his uh, other advisors and the princes, and what follows after that is trouble, particularly for his queen. Anything about the drinking that he did with Haman, after they had passed the law, and the trouble and the mourning that came after that. Now the same situation with the same two men. And yet God is intervening. And so trouble does not come, but joy and freedom. Now this is a sort of a salvation of sorts that comes at God's hand. It's unexplained to us as to why, but Esther delays her petition until tomorrow. I will make no comment about the fact that the queen makes the king wait to know what she actually wants number two the pride and hateful spite of and impatience of haman look at verse number nine then haman went forth that day notice this joyful with glad heart the queen has invited me in i just had a banquet it's just he had to be the most awkward third wheel that ever was Like, it's the king and the queen and this guy, and he leaves just thrilled. No one likes to be the actual third wheel, but Haman's going home so full of pride that he can't help it. So he goes home, he tells his wife and his um, friends about the day that he's had, but on the way, (coughs) something significant happens, well, seemingly insignificant. Mordecai sees him and doesn't move. He does what he always does. He does not respect Haman, he doesn't stand for him, he doesn't move. And it ruins Haman's day. It's how frivolous he is, how prideful he is, and how much idolatry he has in his heart for himself and his public reputation. He's so happy that he has gained an entrance with the king and queen again, and yet in an instant it is ruined. A good measure of our own lives when our joy can be ripped away from something that's Relatively insignificant, it means we focused on the wrong thing. So he boasts to his wife. Notice how he responds in his anger. He calls for his wife and his friends, and he responds first by lifting himself up. He's trying to convince them. Mordecai really should bow down to me. I'm a pretty awesome guy. I just had dinner with the king and the queen, and I was the only one there. Mordecai doesn't sense that. He doesn't know it. So in his pride and his tender ego and his self-centered idolatry for public recognition, notice I gave you a comment there from one of the commentaries that come across about Esther. It says, Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. When the achievement of Haman's goal was challenged, he responded by lashing out in rage, seeking to feed his idol through his boasting. He has to build it up. There's a void in the center of his life that nothing could fill. Notice how he announces it in Chapter 13, yet, verse 13, yet, all this, nothing availeth me, nothing. It doesn't satisfy, he says. It's all destroyed by his bitterness and his greed. He says, I can't actually win anything. I don't feel good about it while Mordecai, notice he gives us, uh, again, some of his motivation. While Mordecai, the Jew, sits in the king's gate, as long as he's alive, I will not be satisfied. Isn't it interesting? This isn't really what the text is speaking to us, but it's a good example of what happens when we become so consumed by the opinion and lives of others that we ourselves cannot live in the freedom that God gives us when we are focused on them. Verse 14, then said his wife and his friends, this is what they say, let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high. We're the gallows there. We in our Western mind picture The old Western, beam up, beam over, triangle with a rope hanging. Most likely that's not exactly the type of gallows that they had. The word gallow there, actually, it's used a lot in the Old Testament. 70 times, I believe it is, it is translated as wood. Uh, About 111 times it's translated as tree. It just means put a beam up, put, put something up, a stick, a tree, a beam. But notice it's not an insignificant one. He says 50 cubits, it means... It's about 75 feet tall. It's about a six-story building tall pole that is going to be raised up, and it says to hang him on. Now, that could be hanging by a noose. If you study Persian culture, usually they would impale people on sticks. That's typically the way that they would execute people if you study Persian history. So most likely it's more talking about that. He's going to be hanging suspended in his death six stories high right next to Haman's house. Haman is just devising a plan. I'm going to unleash all of my bitterness on him. And so Haman is ruined, his impatience, his disturbing greed. And then you have for chapter 6, the sleepless night of the king. There's a lot of things. We won't go back for time's sake tonight and read every little detail of chapter 6. But if you go back through and read it, and, and not ins- I don't want you to insert a word like you're changing God's word, but you insert a word sometimes to kind of help your mind think about it the right way. There's a lot of just-so-happens in chapter 6. And on that particular night, the king just-so-happened they couldn't sleep. And then he calls and commands people to read to him out of the chronicles of their kingdom, and they just-so-happened to read from an account that happened five years earlier about Mordecai, the guy that he just-so-happened he's going to be asked the next morning to kill, happened to also save his life. And it just-so-happens that unlike any sort of Persian custom, he was not rewarded for his loyalty. And it just so happened that Haman happened to walk in at the very moment that the king says, he's looking at his scribes and his palace, he says, I can't seek you guys for advisement and counsel, I have to have a prince, uh, one of the real authoritative people, who's in the court, who's in the court that can give me advice? It just so happens, Haman happens to be walking in. I hope that you understand when I say just so happens, we mean God made happen one right after the next and so you have this that without any given reason the king can't sleep he commands they read to him mordecai has not been rewarded the king says who's in the court and at that moment haman walks in he says to haman how could i best honor a man who deserves it and haman in his pride can think of this is the emperor of the persian kingdom millions of people spread from India to the Mediterranean Sea. And Haman can think of no one that he thinks deserves honor more than himself. This is a prideful man. He says, he must be honoring me. So, what should we do? And we see a little bit of Haman's heart here. What did Haman think of himself? He thought of himself as equal to the king. To be honest, had Haman ever suggested this or been caught talking about this, with someone in the king's court or out in the city, had he ever been recommending that this happen to him, he probably would have been tried and killed for treason. Because he says, let this man put on a robe that the king normally wears. Bring the king's horse and put him on that with the king's crown. And then have a royal prince. Think about it. Haman is all of his peers there that he likes to have authority over and give advice to. Let one of my peers have to guide me through the city and declare this is what the king does for people that he honors and loves. The king does not have Haman in mind. He has Mordecai in mind. And he flips this. It's a reversal. So notice these three reversals right in a row. Haman, by his own suggestions, to clothe with Mordecai, Mordecai with the king's robe and crown, puts Mordecai on the king's horse, And Haman has to become a common herald to glorify Mordecai, the Jew. Then there's another reversal. After all of Mordecai's mourning and fasting in chapter 4, in his weeping and his sorrow, now Haman returns. Remember, Mordecai's weeping and in sorrow and fasting because of Haman's law. Now there's a reversal. Haman runs home with his head covered because of Mordecai's glory. And there's another reversal. Haman's friends and wife, no longer do they say, kill Mordecai. They look at him and they say at the end of the chapter, oh, Mordecai's a Jew. You can't beat them. Mordecai's, or Haman's own wife says to him, evidently there's some knowledge of the Jewish people within the Persian kingdom. E- evidently there are stories of this old kingdom of Israel that they can never seem to be all the way defeated. And when they find out that this Mordecai is one of these Jewish people, his own wife and friends say, oh, yeah, you're not going to beat him. In the chapter before, they're saying, kill him. Put him on a stake 60 feet high, 70 feet high. And in this chapter, they say, you you, not going to happen. And then we see the enemy defeated in chapter 7, now to the beginning of chapter 8. And now you're going to see just one reversal right after the next. And I want us to glorify the Lord in this. Notice, during the banquet... The queen who has hidden her identity for all of these years, for years, for at least five years, she's told no one who she is, who her people are, or for the most part that she's related to Mordecai. And yet now in the first couple verses of the banquet, she completely and clearly identifies with the people and asks for their rescue. So you have the queen who is condemned to die even though she has been hiding who her people are. And now she is requesting her own life and clearly identifying with her people. Then you have another reversal in verse number six. "The Jews have been declared by Haman as enemies of the king, and now a Jew is going to declare Haman as the wicked enemy." See, see the flip there. The Haman had convinced the king, "Kill the Jews, they don't obey." And now Esther is telling the king, "Kill Haman, he's wicked." And in the midst of that, you see it Wedge, that Esther implicates the king almost in a way. Notice what she says in verse number four. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. She said, I probably wouldn't even, she goes on later in the verse. I probably wouldn't even bother you if we'd just been sold into slavery. That's happened to us before as the people of Israel several times. But she says, we have been purchased to be killed. Who purchased them? Haman. Remember he offered 60% of the king's treasury? Who did he offer it to? The king. The king sold his wife and all of his people to death. All of her people to death. And yet now that is reversed. So the king storms out realizing he can't probably simply kill Haman. What's he going to kill him for? I. The king's the one that is the king's ring. Haman did the work. The king's the one that passed the law that all the Jews be killed he's been tricked so he storms out in rage and Haman can't follow him because by tradition if you follow the king somewhere he's alone it's threat of death you're going to die the guards are not going to risk an assassination in that day and age you don't follow him alone so he can't go in he can't run or leave because he's going to be caught and arrested for fleeing the king's presence he also can't be alone with Esther we know that based on Persian law and the eunuchs that were taken care of so now he is left publicly within the, the palace staff that is there at this banquet and he's having to publicly plead Esther for his own life instead of the other way around. And ironically, maybe one of the most ironic parts of all of these chapters, you notice there on the back, Haman had, kept, Haman had decided he's going to kill all the Jews because he kept secrets and he lied to trick the king into the genocide of the Jews. Now he pleads before the queen, please save my life. The Bible does not say that Haman had any ill intent at this moment toward Esther to hurt or to harm her. But notice what the king perceives. He walks back in at a moment that Haman has bowed down before Esther and in his emotion, he has bowed and laid down at her feet on the couch that she is reclining on for the banquet. So the king, who may not have put Haman to death for the law, now sees this man approach his wife. And he says, are you going to do this in my own palace? And at the moment that he says it, and it's interesting, Haman lies and deceives, but in a moment of sincerity, he gets a death sentence. So the king walks in, perceives it, and the moment he says it, they cover his head, most likely throw a hood over his head, they take him out, and then you have this other reversal. Haman passes a law that would force kingdom citizens to murder the Jews in their own towns and homes across the kingdom. And yet now he's going to be killed by his peers just outside of his own home. Haman is hung, most probably, like we said, impaled six stories high, the same place that he planned to kill Mordecai. And then the first two verses of chapter 8, the riches and the wealth that Haman boasted about. Remember he said, He offers the king 10,000 talents, this massive amount of wealth, huge, unfathomable amount of wealth. He offers that to the king. He comes back and he brags to his wife, oddly enough, about his money and his multitude of children and his power, that he is no one greater than him, than the emperor. And yet now, all the riches and wealth that Haman boasted about are given to Esther. And the position of authority that Haman boasted about is given to Mordecai. Now, I want you to think, what did Esther and Mordecai do to accomplish any of this? Nothing. (laughs) They physically did the act. They made the request. She had the courage to go in. They physically did nothing. God radically flipped the situation on its head. And He can and He will do this over and over again until one day he does it not just in the life of Israel not just in the life of a church not just in the life of you and I as individuals but to the universe eternally I don't want you to miss that all of these reversals they're great but ultimately they point to the greatest reversal in which God destroys the sin and evil that has rampantly ruined the lives of His most treasured creation. That one day He will flip it all, set it right, and make it new. And as much as we laugh at the irony of this story, how crazy this really is in our own minds, how wild it is that God can take an awful situation, 3,000 days of horrible things, and then flip it completely in an instant. It's incredible. And it feels like, whew, okay, sigh of relief. All is well. Actually, it's not all well. We're going to talk about that next week. But here's what I want us to close with an application. That God is ultimately in control. There is not a single person in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 that can claim control. Esther doesn't have it. If the king responds away king can kill her the king doesn't have it he doesn't have a clue what's going on we're going to look at that next week he has no idea he calls in mordecai the jew did you notice that he says king says mordecai the jew let's honor him not even realizing that the jews are the people that he's actually condemned to death there's not a person that is in control in any of these chapters it is god alone and though it may feel like someone or something else has a grip on our lives and will not let go God is in control. Notice that God is patient but powerful in His work. Nine years of hidden work, and He reverses the tables in two days. Sound familiar? He works for thousands of years of human history, preparing for one birth, 30 years of silence, three years of ministry, a few hours on a cross, three days in a tomb, and in an instant turns the world upside down with the gospel. And we look back and think think of all that God has done. And yet this reversal should also point us to what God is going to do. Because if He can be patient for thousands of years to bring His Son and transform the world in an instant, He's doing that patient and powerful work right now as well. And it is all coming toward a second coming of Christ in which in an instant whether we can see or sense or feel that right now or not, in an instant, all will be made new. And there will be no one else to creep in and challenge His reign and His rule. This is a small reversal that points to the greater reversal that God will one day do in all of human hearts. Notice that though the events are dark, we are called to joy and even laughter in the way that God thwarts the plans and power of the evil in Haman. And one day we will laugh, as hard as that is to understand, I believe we will laugh with unspeakable joy, not at the darkness and at the evil like it was silly, but when we see it all reversed and destroyed, don't you think that will invoke laughter in our hearts? The way that we laugh at foolish Haman thinking he's going to honor himself and then having to be abased at his worst enemy to glorify him. Evil and sin and Satan will be humiliated and destroyed. And our response, I am certain, will be great joy and laughter. And as hard as that is to get in the 3,000 days of difficulty, we wait with anticipation and faith for the two days that turn it on its head. And then the final, you see there, ask yourself, how has the hand of God in Esther encouraged your life to trust Him, even when He seems absent? And then you have some scripture reading there from the New Testament that speak of the greater reversals of what God does in our hearts through the gospel. Let's ask Him to help us tonight, and we'll spend a little time in prayer. Lord, as we walk through this passage, to just quickly, I'm sure we have missed many things. But as we look at a life, lives that were hurting deeply, who felt like, I'm sure Mordecai felt like all was lost. There was no hope. Though he knew hope would come from somewhere, he did not sense that it could be had for himself. Esther, who is scared of her husband, who is. Um, terrified for her people, uncertain of what to do, who had lived in secrecy for years, and yet you worked. And sometimes our hearts sense those same things. We question, we have shame, we have sadness, we have mourning. And God, tonight we proclaim that we trust you. We don't know where we are in our nine years of difficulty figuratively, we don't know where we stand, but we look toward your two days of change. And we trust you and we thank you that you will make all things right, that every pain and evil, every destroyed part of our lives, every sin, everything that's been affected by wrong That like a weight, it will be lifted, gotten rid of, and we'll never sense or see it again. And we don't understand it, and we certainly don't experience it at the moment. But we ask you for it, and we trust you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would notice on the back, on your prayer section tonight, several names that are there, I've been there for quite some time, some, and we're continuing to pray for those, several that have been undergoing cancer treatment. <clears throat> we have one praise you see there, Dick Lewis. This is Jeff Lewis' father. Jeff told me his, uh, he was able to have the surgery, and uh, we're praising the Lord that they have said no signs of cancer. And so that's a, a wonderful blessing. Continue to pray for his recovery. You know that they were sick recently, and he's had a number of health issues. So just continue to pray for Jeff's dad. Uh, praying for Mrs. Watson's family at her funeral yesterday, continuing to pray for Valerie and Bob and Robin and uh, her son Michael and the rest of her grandkids and family in the days uh, to come as well. Praying for Laurie. Claim uh, this is Mary Martin's daughter uh, that's going through cancer treatment as well right now. And then two add ons that you see there at the bottom, neighbors of some of our church members that have uh, gotten and, and talked to and asked for permission to share these requests with us as a church, and so we want to do that. Someone gives us the opportunity, the honor to pray over them. We want to do that. You see Gail Sharon's neighbors with COVID and then some recent health issues, recovering from open heart surgery. There's some hospitalization with uh, the one there named Mike, and so we'll be praying for them, and then for this friend of Lucy Melton, Joy Biggs, as she has surgery on Friday. I want you to pray, continue to pray for the Lord's work in our lives and in our church. Uh, as he continues to guide, uh, we have um, just a number of opportunities that we want to honor the Lord with. And so let's continue to pray for one another as we do. Let's spend uh, four or five minutes in prayer tonight. As we close, we'll be dismissed in just a moment. Uh, but slide over and pray together with another uh, couple or member from family from our church and spend some time in prayer. Share a prayer request if you like, and then we'll be dismissed in just a moment.